Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Science, exercise, nutrition, health, energy, passion. One year, no beer. This is the One Year No Beer podcast, where you will find all the latest tips, tricks, and hacks for a way to live better. Today, my guest is an American-born British actor of Indian descent. He's a celebrity, mental health campaigner, voted India's most stylish man, something I will (laughs) never have for any country, uh, appeared on the front page of GQ magazine, and was a judge on India's equivalent to next top model. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sid Malia. Hi, that's How are you today? Very, very good, and thank you so much for having me. And where are you right now? Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. Right. So we're recording this yeah. um, in the middle of lockdown love. So is, is it a similar situation for you over there with lockdown? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I don't think it's quite as um, strict here uh, as, it, as it is in the UK and, and in other parts of the world. Um, but yes, it, you know, the, the whole social distancing measures and stay at home orders and all that sort of thing is, is definitely in play. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a strange time we live in. Strange. What's the general vibe? Um, you know, I, I think it does help in LA that it's, it's, we've constantly got good weather. I, I, I believe that they were having issues in the UK of sort of keeping people out of the parks because of the of the sunshine so you can imagine what that's like not good at rules Um, over here (laughs) no no i don't think anyone is and um i think that it's 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 um you definitely do feel um a shift in energy just a, a general shift in energy i think that there's you know like a sense of uncertainty Mm. and that 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 uncertainty was sort of going day by day not really knowing what's going to happen or when things are going to reopen or if things are going to reopen and you know we got a got a president here who who himself um seems to you know only be thinking about one thing and that's his election <laughs> in november so uh as a result of that um it, it's very difficult to tell kind of what what what's um what's going to happen or in fact what's the best thing that's meant to happen yeah absolutely it is also i've been talking about this a lot inside the community um and uh, and, and and things is that is that we can't underestimate um, what this is psychologically doing to us at the moment um, in terms of the heightened anxiety, the messaging coming out, the constant co- you know, conversation about deaths, um, but also you know, um, loss and grief are very, very yeah. mourning. It's a, it's a very powerful emotion. And we don't just mourn the loss of humans or pets, but we can mourn the loss of routine. We can mourn the loss of a job. We can mourn the loss of just going down to that shop or, you know, yeah. like going and having your mocha froppa lappuccino, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, you can mourn the loss of that. And so there are these 
these heightened level of emotions which are affecting all of us and i think we just don't realize that yeah that it's it's funny you mentioned that i actually wrote a piece um last night on mental health for a, for a publication and 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 i talked about how um in times like this uh looking after one's mental well-being for the reasons that you just said is is paramount because um people are feeling heightened levels of anxiety and perhaps feeling things that they've never felt accustomed to before and you know you hearing words like quarantine isolation lockdown it, it, these do have a lot of sort of i'd say negative connotations Completely. and Completely. and it can really make one feel feel lonely and um I, I just did something on loneliness as well. And it's like at times like this, you might be in lockdown or isolation with your entire family. And thanks to things like what we're doing now, Zoom and FaceTime and, you know, all these sorts of things, the world is actually designed to keep us in contact, even when we're not able to see each other. But it's almost as if these things that we have can make us feel even more isolated. Yeah. Completely. Absolutely. Because you realize, and for many people, you know, they, they're not around their family. They're stuck in a flat and, you know, yeah. all sorts of things like that. Um, well, we're going to get stuck into lots of this stuff, but um, one of the re main reasons we wanted to get you on the podcast is that um, we picked up with our s social media sniffer dogs um, that yeah. you recently <laughs> celebrated what we call One Year No Beer. Hey! Yes, yes. Well done. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so um, that is awesome. You've done extremely well. We're going to go dive deep into to that shortly. Um, and your post you put up about your one-year celebration um, got a lot of attention. Um, so that's really where we, we picked you up. And congratulations on hitting a year. It's an, it's an amazing Thank you. Thank you very much. So um, for, the, for, for everybody listening, give us a bit of background into Sid, um, early life and, and, um, and, and your career to date. Yeah, so um, I, was, I was actually born here in Los Angeles um, for some random reason that I'm not really quite sure yet why, uh, but then moved to the UK when I, was, when I was very young, when I was only nine months old, um, grew up my whole life pretty much in, in England, um, in the south, in Surrey, um, went to boarding school when I was, when I was 10, so that was good, um, but I'm 30 two now looking back on it actually uh 10 is really young <laughs> but it was but it was it was it, it was, was old fun. then <laughs> it, was, it, it was great you know it was around the same time the harry potter books came out and that one sort of thing so i was like oh this is fun um so yeah schooled in the uk uh, went to wellington college um graduated and went to queen mary for university queen mary in london because uh, to study business um because you know being um, the only son of a business family and that to it of an Indian business family, I guess it was sort of always expected that I was going to, you know, one day step into that and take over the reins just like my dad did from his dad. And, um, so that's why I went to study business, spent three years at Queen Mary, um, drank more than I studied, um, was captain of that's the, pretty of common the for university. That was pretty common. <laughs> that was common, but I was captain of the university hockey team. I, I did leave with a 2-1 degree, so I'd like to think that I still did get what I was meant to get out of it, uh, apart from just the, the cheap pints and uh, shots of apple sours. Um, <laughs> and um, 
then I then I then I then I spent a year working for Diageo, who you'll obviously be very familiar with. Yeah. Um, the idea was that you know, and for your listeners who might not know about me, our family business, ironically, is um, alcohol and the manufacturing and owning and distributing of alcoholic brands in India. Um, we were the largest alcohol company in the world by volume at the time. So the idea was, you know, go and work for another company rather than coming straight into the family business. I think that's always important, you know, to go and get a perspective elsewhere. Um, so I worked for Diageo for a year in their sunny offices in Park Royal, which if any of you know where that is, is not the most glamorous place in the world. But um, I was the assistant brand manager on Guinness and my responsibilities at the time were basically looking after the sponsorship activation that Guinness had with Premiership Rugby. Um, at the time, it was the Guinness Premiership. I thought this was a dream job because I am a massive rugby fan. And, and, and it was great, you know. I, I got to go on um, very glamorous business trips around the UK, visiting all the great rugby clubs from Newcastle to Sale to all these sorts of places. But yeah, it, it was fun for a year. And then I left and went to India. And um, that's where I started working in the family business. Um, one of our other angles is sports. Um, we owned a number of professional sporting outfits. One of them was the Royal Challengers Bangalore cricket team that takes part in the Indian Premier League, the IPL T20 competition. And I basically um, was running that. Um, and it was strange, you know, at 22 years old, I'm kind of the general manager for this, for this for professional sports team, sort of Amazing. signing players, contracts, and, um, you know, responsible for signing the contracts of people like Chris Gale and A.B. De Villiers and, um, wow. you know, Working with a young Virat Kohli, who today, if you know, if you're a cricket fan, you know he's the he's the premier player on the planet. So that that, that was enjoyable. Um, Amazing. But I was also from that age quite interested in you know sort of social causes as well. And um, the team was based in the city of Bangalore. Now, Bangalore is known as the Garden City of India. It's also the IT hub. There's a lot of greenery. There's a lot of parks and. One of the initiatives that I, I spearheaded was the Go Green campaign, where basically we, we, we got our fans to all change their light bulbs to carbon neutral, to, to was it carbon neutral bulbs or electric bulbs? Anyway, and we, we, um, we ended up being the world's first ever carbon neutral cricket team, but the world's first ever carbon neutral sports team solely through fan engagement. I mean, a lot of big corporations call themselves carbon neutral by buying carbon credits but we were the first to do it by getting our fans to to um participate in our in our in our scheme and it was you know it was a widely praised scheme by the un we were making um sort of presentations to the undersecretary general of the united nations unep which is their environmental program were behind us and um yeah it was it was really good and it was you know it was it was at that point where where i, I realized i was like no matter what you do in life no matter what platform you have you have that responsibility to use it to do good with amazing um 
tell me if I'm talking too much at any point. No, this I, can, is I can go on and on and on. Um, <laughs> what, a, what an experience. And then really just to, to, to shape that as well as a decision, you know, A, to be having those experiences at, at such a young age, yeah. and, you know, the family putting you into it or, or you having that opportunity and meeting those people, but also that the, the, there's this thread. And I know this now from, you know, digging up, quite a lot about you about who you are and really it was about this impact um and um you know and doing good in the world and i think you know it's amazing to see that reflecting so keep going i'm um that yeah no and i appreciate you saying that i mean that 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 for me was definitely um uh was a big moment for me knowing that you know we can we all have the power to change the world and um which I'll come to later on. Yeah, well, I, I, well while you're there, exactly, huge, exactly. Such a, I think that, I think that, you know, I, I've always tried to live by the mantra that I try to put a, once, I would try to put a smile on at least one person's face a day. Yeah. And to me, if you can do that, then I think you've succeeded in changing the world. Yeah. Because, you know, um, Something as small as, and I, I hope people start valuing this more when, you know, human interaction does, 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 does resurface. But something small as asking someone how their day is at the grocery store and making them smile. Well, you've now temporarily made that person feel better. The chances are that person is going to keep that high and pass it on to someone else. And it's a knock-on effect. And that, that's what I mean by changing the world. You know, changing the world with royal challenges, it was something as simple as, saying to our fans, hey, you don't have to do this, but would you be interested in changing your light bulbs to an energy efficient light bulb? Yeah. And if you get enough people doing it, it makes a big, a big difference. I think too many people are, are afraid to, they, they talk about wanting to make the world a better place or changing the world, but then they, they, they get sort of like fear about it. And they're like, oh, well, if I don't go and cure hunger, tomorrow or if i don't go and cure the yep. coronavirus well then i haven't changed the world and it's and called ripples say, ripples not waves yes 100 and, and i think that changing the world doesn't mean going and yes it would be great if someone could go and do these things of course but it doesn't mean that that's the only way to make the world a better place yeah um, and that's certainly something that i learned from my from my dealings in india um while i was also there i was doing a lot of media stuff um a lot of interviews tv interviews for the team but also for myself um you know you mentioned i was shooting magazines and being featured on talk shows and really what i what i thought was that you know i, I am here in india um i do come from this family that's pretty well recognized but i'm not content just being a cog in a wheel if you know what i mean i want to sort of take that platform that I have and make myself into my own brand and aside from all of this I started doing that and you know there was modeling involved there was all sorts of things and it really for me performing and being in front of a camera and interacting even like what we're doing now is something that I've, I've really always enjoyed from a young age I think it stems from being an only child uh you do develop a wild sense of imagination as an only child and that definitely you know <laughs> has had an impact on me later in life um i'm far more at ease and having fun when i'm interacting with people or when i'm doing stuff as opposed to being stuck behind a desk for eight hours 
Um, and it was, it was, it was then where people had seen some of my interviews and they're like, Oh, you know, you come across quite well on the screen. You talk quite well. You have this sort of naturalism. Have you, have you ever thought about taking it further and acting or talk shows or anything like that? And I was like, you know what I, I have, and I've, I've always kind of really, that's been my passion. But because I grew up, as I said, sort of with this expectation that I was going to go into the business, I never really paid too much of attention to it. But it was at that point where I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to take this a bit more seriously. And I did my first thing, which was I hosted an online show with a few of these international cricketers um, just to get a bit of an insight into their life, which was a big hit. And um, after that, I was 24, 25 at the time. I was like, you know what? this is where I'm happier. This is what I'm happier doing, um, acting and performing and being able to express myself. Um, I'm going to pursue it full time. And I um, had a conversation with my dad and I said to him and I said, I said, look, I, 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 I just don't think I'll be able to take the business on the way that you did. And, um, and, he, and he said something very true. He said, look, if your heart's not in it, and you don't love what you do, you're never going to be successful at it. He said, the reason I can be successful at this and work 18 hour days is because I love what I do. If you don't love this, go and do what you want to do and what you love. And you know, that was great advice. I'm fortunate for it. And that's when I decided to hop across the pond and make the most of that American citizenship that I, that I had <laughs> yes. from birth, from being born um, for from being nine born months. here. And, and that's how I got into the entertainment world. And since then, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be a part of a few great projects. Um, again, my first film, Brahman Naman, which was which premiered at Sundance, which was bought it's on Netflix right now. Even though it's a comedy, even though it's they describe it as a sex comedy, but you know, without for people who don't know what that is, a sex comedy is sort of what they class the in-betweeners and American Pie like. Um, and even though it is basically the in-between is set in Bangalore in the 1970s, it does touch a much deeper social issue, which is the caste system that still exists in India. So again, I found myself drawn to something which not only could have a global, you know, entertainment impact, but could also have a social impact on people as well. And um, yeah, that, that's been good. Um, and then it's been working on my production company and developing a few projects of my own. Um, I, I do think if you're in the position where you can produce your own content, um, you know, then do it. Um, and you get to tell the stories you want to tell. Um, we, def we have one at the moment which centers on mental health and sort of the, the kinds of, I guess, the pressures that, the youth of today experience that probably our parents' generation never did, to be honest. I mean, you know, with the social medias of the world and mm. Instagrams and having to feel like a lot of people feel like they have to have a separate personality. So we, we have a show that looks at that and hopefully once the world's back in order, we can, we can see where, where that goes. And then of course my series consider this, which has been the most recent thing. So yeah, that's a, pretty long explanation of my <laughs> quick background but hopefully that's given everything no lots of lots of insight and the um the consider this i had a good look at now um actually in the um consider this you talk about um a, a, a moment in your life where you were receiving a lot of online hate 
um, and mm. um, that kind of spiraled into into depression. Do you want to talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I I, I wouldn't say that the that the online hate but, was sort of the the trigger to 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 spiral into the depression. I think it definitely contributed to what I was already feeling. Yeah. But yeah, I I, I think that you know um, if you if you're in any public position if you are a public figure anyway you, you can't please everyone um no matter how good you try to do for the world that you're always going to have people who who don't like it um i think it's always okay to express an opinion i think you know i think we should express our opinions we don't have to agree with everything but i think there's a way of doing it and i think that sadly today people are getting a lot more angry with the likes of social media because it gives them an outlet to get angry without having to face the consequences for what they write. Mm. And I'm sure you've seen people write things on social media, which you you can't even imagine that if they were there face to face with you, they would even dream about saying to your face. And I think that's where people need to realize that, you know, look, when you are commenting on something, when you are commenting on a picture or abusing a picture, you're not abusing that picture. You're abusing the person who's behind the picture. And yeah, I I think that was hard to take. Um, And it is very sad. I think that how there are so many, you know, what do they call them? Internet trolls now called keyboard warriors that's my favorite one who sit yep. at home and and can from the comfort of their own living room really cause misery to to someone else and i think the sad thing here is that most of these people don't realize what they're doing no that's yeah well most people don't um and you're right and um you know if they could be i i don't know how that would all work but you know we've seen some some terrible situations caroline flack in the uk um oh yeah um, from the media and and um and all that kind of stuff and you know we get loads of um of of trolls um and you'll see it sometimes on our on our social posts and and everything else um who just want to attack what we're doing or the the actual testimonial of somebody and you know in a way when you take somebody's testimonial from the audience and then put it out to the public and they start trolling it we have a duty of care to make sure that we protect that individual um and um so yeah it, you know it can be a very dark place but but you so i obviously that was just a factor you had some underlying stuff which you discovered uh, in this process of, of uh, tell me a bit more about yeah. this experience well so for me the, the depressive episode happened in 2016 and um I was at drama school. That's one thing I forgot about my life. I went to drama school. I trained at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in the UK. It was a very intense year. It was a master's. So, you know, I mean, you're performing from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., five days a week. It's, it's, it's exhausting. And their idea is to basically open you up as a performer and then basically break you and rebuild you in the way that they want. And um, I think all this sort of stuff I had you know, my dad started to have some legal issues and um, the, the, the media and the members of the public started sort of abusing me for it. 
And I think this was all happening, but while I was at school, I was so consumed in what I was doing that I had a nice distraction. So the problems were there, but I had this distraction. Then of course, school finishes and the distraction goes, but those problems are still there. And it was then that it really started to hit me full on, like the gravity of what was going on. And, and I just started to feel very alone and, and very empty, even though that I had everything that I, you know, I just graduated from one of the best drama schools in the world. I had all my friends. I was in the UK. Family was there. I had everything. I would just wake up in the mornings feeling empty and alone and then not understanding why and then beating myself up and like trying to figure out why, why, why are you feeling this way? Which of course, anyone listening to this knows that is just a spiral to fall even further down that rabbit hole. Completely. And it, it, it was, I say this in the video, I was at a friend's wedding, you know, big Indian wedding. So you can imagine Indian weddings, a good 700, 800 person affairs. And it was, it was in, it was in Ibiza, which is cool. Nice place for a wedding. Love Ibiza. All my friends are there. All my friends are there. At the time I was drinking, I was partying. Like it was, everything was set up to have an amazing time. Yet that whole weekend, I just felt empty and alone and crushed and just void of anything inside. And it was after that where I was like, okay, if you can't have a good time at, you know, when you're in a place where you have everyone you want to be around, then you probably need to do something about this. And that's when I, when I, went into therapy, took antidepressants and um, started that journey. Yeah. And, um, and the journey of self-discovery over your mental health, um, you were diagnosed with OCD. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That was another one. I mean, I'll be honest. I've, I've known I've had OCD since I was a kid. Like, I mean, I remember when the psychiatrist said clinical diagnosis of OCD, I was like, you know, thanks Sherlock. I mean, why am I paying this money to be told that? Like I could have <laughs> told you that, but I didn't like a lot of people realize just how, how impactful OCD is on one's life. Mm-hmm. And it's only after I started working with my new therapist who I have here in LA, fantastic lady. Um, we've been working together for about two years. Um, and it eventually, only at the end of last year, we started, I said, okay, now I'm ready to tackle the OCD. She gave me this workbook. And this workbook is fantastic. It obviously gives you some exercises to do, but it really, really simplifies and explains what OCD is yeah. and how it can manifest in so many different ways that you just don't even think about. But then the penny and drops and you're like, like, oh my God, so that's yeah, why I do that. And oh, so that's yeah. why I need that comfort. And oh, so that's why I have to do that that way. And it's, yeah, it's, and, and, and it's and actually it, relieving, isn't it? To, to have it, that. It is relieving. Feeling it's relieving that you're to not at least broken. know why you've done it. <laughs> yeah. That for sure, feeling that you're not broken, but then also accepting that it's an illness. Yeah. It is a chronic illness that you can manage. It's like yeah. diabetes. You can manage it, but you can never get rid of it. Yeah. So I think like with anything in life, it's about acceptance, isn't it? So the first thing is to accept, look, I have this, this, this illness. And you know, I'm still working through this workbook. I have about three weeks left of it. Um, and you know, like with lots of things, OCD doesn't like to have a light shined on it. I mean, in the last four months since I've started to do this workbook, my OCD has gotten 10x worse. 
Now that's probably, as they say, things need to get worse before you get better because I think when you really shine a light on something, you're kind of purging it out of your system. And wow. it's like it's trying to cling on to every little thing it can to, um, to sort of stay in my life. But um, I'm, I'm happy that I'm working on it because it, it, without realizing it, it's caused so much discomfort and um for so long those obsessive thoughts which i'm sure you'll come on to next also contributed to my discomfort when i was drinking and yeah. also yeah. fueled the reason why i stopped yeah and uh, we are going to come on to that you're absolutely right because that's all this that's what this podcast is all about but um um I'm undi sorry, diagnosed adult ADHD and the self-discovery, the discovery around it was, oh my God, like, wow, that's amazing. That explains my whole life. <laughs> In yeah. the okay, so I'm not the only one. Um, oh, I'm not that special. Um, those were all some realizations I went through, but then I had these practical tools and everything else. And the one thing with this sliding scale of mental health that we know emphatically is that lots of people who are on that scale are using alcohol to numb and because the brain just makes so much noise you know and for you it was obsessive um, um thoughts for me it's hyperactivity and distraction and all of those kind of things so alcohol is so often prevalent when there's mental health and it's the worst thing for it and that's the experience that you have now gone through so I, tell me about your relationship um with alcohol give me a bit of background into this and also yeah <laughs> I, I, i've got to ask this question because of course you're you i mean you said yourself that your family was one of the largest alcohol companies in the world mm. and now you've changed your relationship with alcohol and and what's your experience of that yeah i will tell i, I yeah I, I love talking about this um <laughs> but to start with i will say that like with anything with 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 anything that i think that be it alcohol, be it drugs, be it pills, be it whatever, it's so much easier for people to just get a quick fix, to temporarily numb their problems as opposed to really, really, really um, face, their, face their demons, if you like. And then that numbing can become the demon in itself. Completely. And that's what I realized that I perhaps was doing. So, right, okay, I said to you I went to boarding school when I was 10 years old. You know, good old British boarding school back in the early 2000s. Yeah, I, I probably, I've been drinking since I was 13 years old. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time I got drunk, uh, quite by accident, we were given beers because my best friend's elder brother actually plays or played international rugby. At the time, he was playing in some school's cup final so we all went along to Twickenham to watch this game and they were handing out beers and 11-year-old Sid was like, oh, okay, this is disgusting, but I'll drink it. And the next morning, <laughs> I'm trying I'm to fit in. Get the hangover. Yeah, yeah, the hangover that I had. Um, but then, you know, at Wellington, we were sneaking into the bushes on a Saturday night with our Smirnoff ices and our WKD blues and, you know, all the sorts oh, yeah. of stuff that's got enough sugar in it to give you diabetes kind of thing. Like, um, and thinking that we were the coolest kids in the world, like doing a shot of Smirnoff ice and thinking that was a shot of vodka. Like we were really cool. Look, as I said in my video on this subject, was it did you ever, that a 13 year old was? Did you, did you ever get did iced? I, 
Do you know what that is? Ice. Yeah, it's no. when you basically you hide a Smirnoff ice on you somewhere, and if the person, so you're going to flash it, and if the person looks at it, they've got to neck it. So yeah. <laughs> you used to just like, no, you, you, you got this game, like when all of a sudden somebody would like lift an arm and you would look and you go, oh no, like all those silly games. Yeah. No, those silly games. No, that one, that one, that one skipped me. But the, the worst with those was obviously saving the queen with, a, with people putting a 2p coin in a pint. And then you having to neck the pipe. Now, looking back on that, yeah, it was quite fun. But it was also like, how ridiculous was that? Um, yep. uh, but yeah, so look, was it was it good that thirteen year olds were sneaking off into the bushes drinking? Absolutely not. And I, I'm not condoning that one bit. But was it, for the most part, innocent fun that didn't really get in the way of anything? Yes. Yeah, but it is okay, just what we all do. We, That's what society is doing. It, 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 is, it is what we did. Yeah, it wasn't like, you know, we weren't getting drunk and going and robbing convenience stores or anything like that sort of thing. I mean, it was what it was. Then grew up, left um, Wellington, went to Queen Mary. And I think for me, what I realized is that, well, now I'm not at boarding school anymore. I can like, have beer in my fridge and like, I had all this freedom and, you know, you, you go to university and today it's a little bit different, but you go back then and it was a pound a pint, a pound a pint and with a free apple sours on the side. So for a 10 quid, you could get 10 pints and 10 shots. Oh my God. A hundred percent. And you think about it now, you, you look back on it and you're like, first of all, the human body can't hold 10 pints. I, I believe that the most a stomach can hold is four. So you're necking these pints, going to the toilet, being sick just because of the volume of liquid you had in yourself, chewing a piece of gum and going back to the bar. And now you look back on it and we can laugh, but it, it was horrendous. It was horrendous. But, you know, again, that was the, the drinking culture at university. and. Um, I have enough of the free T-shirts to, to sort of to, 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 to prove it, kind of thing. But, um, um, but again, yeah, there was it. Was it? Was it good drinking? No. Was it? Did it get in the way of my studies? No. I still got my degree. The problem when alcohol really became problematic for me is when I moved to India, and I was getting blotto drunk three, four nights a week. Not because I was using it as like, oh, I want to have a good time. But I was using it because I didn't actually want to be in India. I just moved there. I was a fish out of water. I was in a new environment. And I was going out and getting drunk kind of, as you said, as a, as a, as a distraction or to numb having to really deal with my reality. Um, but it took me a long time to realize this. It took me a long time to accept this. And um, I then moved to, to LA and uh, coincidentally with all of this drinking, I would wake up the next morning with morbid fears of anxiety, which I think they call beer fear. Is the, That's you know, it. the term. But, the beer know, fear? That, yeah, that, um, the morbid anxiety the next morning, like, did I do something wrong? Did I yeah. hurt someone? Did I do something illegal? Like, I had this preoccupation with, like, I'd done something really bad and I was going to go to jail. Like. Mm. 
all this anxiety and it would make me want to lie in bed with the lights off and go back to sleep to avoid having those fears. And, you know, these fears would last two, three days after drinking. And um, the two or three days after a big session, I wasn't, oh, it wasn't even a big session. Even if it was two drinks, I would still get this anxiety the next morning. And um, I, I had this morbid fear that would last for two or three days. And, um, and uh, it then was when I was like, hang on a second, this, this just isn't worth it anymore. The sort of, and I didn't also know that these fears the next day were also OCD related. And if you have OCD, they can fuel these sorts of, um, what do they call paranoid, irrational thoughts. Yeah. It was at that point where I was like, I, I need to make a change here. And at this point in my life, alcohol isn't having the desired impact that it should have. It's not working for me in a way that I, that I would like it to. And I need to make a change. And I never said that I'm going to quit for life. I never said that if you hear in all the stuff that I've said, I'll never say alcohol is bad either. I said, you just need to figure out if it's bad for you at this current juncture. And for me, it was. And that's why I decided to 20 months ago now, um, hey. to, uh, to, yeah, to, to, to stop. That's brilliant. Amazing. And so you just took, took a decision, stopped, um, took a break. Um, did you go public? Did you, how, how was your journey? You know, did you find it easy? What were the bumps and, what was your experience? Yeah. So I've, I've, I've been able to stop before. Like I would go in my life. I've, I've gone like two months, three months without drinking here and there. Like I just decided to stop. So it wasn't that difficult for me. Um, but when I made the decision, I felt good. And honestly, I have not had an urge. Like I've never been on a night out where people are getting smashed and I'm like, I just wish I could have one shot. I wish I could just have one drink. Like I really miss it. That really fortunately for me has not come in. I think that also helps because I've had amazing friends who've been nothing but supportive. Not a You're single friend has questioned me. Um, there's been one person who, who I was out once and I was like, I, I don't drink anymore. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. She's like, Oh, stop this antisocial behavior. Stop this antisocial. And I was like, at that point, I was like, well, to be honest, you don't add any value to my life. I, I don't need to continue this conversation. Goodbye. Kind of thing. Like if, if my drinking or me not drinking is having an impact on your good time, then you have a problem, not me. And that was someone, but for the most part, my friend, all my friends, my close friends have been nothing but supportive. Haven't questioned it once. Um, I guess I'm also fortunate that I'm one of those people who can stay out till 6 a.m. without a drop of alcohol. So then I'm like, well, then why do it? What added, you know, impact am I getting or experience am I getting by adding the alcohol in? So um, after the, the one year anniversary of when I stopped, yeah. I, um, I put a post up online saying to people, you know, it's been one year since I stopped drinking. Uh, explained a little bit of the story that I just that I just told you about, and what really struck me was the response from people. Thousands of messages saying, "Sid, we feel the same way. We also want to stop. We also feel that fear the next morning, but 
we don't know how to. We don't know how to do it without losing our friends. We don't want to be that guy in the social group that kind of gets ostracized because, you know, he he's the guy in the group that doesn't drink. So how do you do it? And it, and it was, it was then that I was like, okay, I need to do something about this um, to sort of re-educate people around alcohol and tell them that it's not bad. It's not bad. I won't say it's bad. You just have to figure out if it's bad for you. And if you're doing it just because you're scared of losing your friends and you're scared that your friends won't support you, well then honestly, you probably need new friends. Well said. Well said. Absolutely. Um, yeah, amazing. And um, amazing that you've, you've clearly um, hit a nerve with people and inspired people. So, but I'm, I'm really curious, you know, um, with the family, how do, how do they, you know, especially you've mentioned that you want to do something about this and help inspire people to, uh, you know, really our focus is about changing people's relationship with alcohol. So for us, for me, I didn't drink for two years and now I drink as much as I want whenever I want. Um, and I think most people, uh, and we certainly see this from when they when they're looking to join one year Nobia, most people are searching for control. Um, they're looking to get uh, their relationship with alcohol into a place of control. You know, for us, it's about helping people change their relationship with alcohol. But um, how does the family view what you've done, and and how do they view what you're intending to do? Um, the family have been fine about it. Honestly, I think with me that they know that I'm a very strong-willed person. So if I say I'm going to do something, then it's it, it's uh, of little kind of uh, use to them for trying to stop me. But no one, I think, would with something like this. Um, and it's not really a discussion I had with my family. I just did it. Um, I just decided to do it, and um, and they've been great. And you know, my dad has always said that. You know, I think that. No one, even though whatever promotion and whatever alcohol that we've sold, we've always been, you know, we've always talked about drinking responsibly. And that's really all I'm doing is continuing that message. Um, and, I, and I feel like I have a duty to do it. You know, when my grandfather was in the business, when my dad was in the business, it was a very different world than what we live in today. Yeah. And the way that people are starting to look at mental health and issues a lot more today, and it's not sort of seen as a taboo subject, I feel like. I have a duty to, you know, to, I guess, promote alcohol, but in a different way than they did. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, that's then very exciting, you know, for, for the world as well. And that's what we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the rise in alcohol-free alternatives that giving people other options, alcohol-free bars, um, setting up, um, you know, we want a world that's inclusive. That's really what we want. We want a world that's inclusive where when you go to a bar, there is no peer pressure. There is no expectation. You could be drinking any kind of drink with the alcohol or not with alcohol, and you're free, completely free, without judgment to choose. And, and what's amazing is we're sort of heading towards that, you know, certainly with the more um, alcohol-free alternatives and society is changing, culture is changing. What is also interesting is that that happens very slowly. <laughs> We've realized yeah. this now, how slowly that happens. I mean, World Health Organization is, is still expecting a dramatic alcohol consumption rise um, over yeah. the next 10 years, over the next decade, despite there being this, this cultural shift. And I, I actually think that this is a great opportunity for the alcohol companies um, to 
instead of being like the cigarette companies, which was to fund misinformation, to hold on to everything they possibly could, fight every battle they could to try and keep um, uh, cigarettes well marketed and in the mainstream and you know, with a lot of misinformation around, attached to it, I think actually the alcohol industry has a perfect opportunity here to change public health with moving with the times, and that is to start focusing on alcohol-free alternatives and the drinks that come after that, right? If you look yeah. at the world, what's happening with um, um, psychedelic drugs or um, the research that's coming in with all of these other, there are other ways for people to feel relaxation, um, feel a sense of connection, love. And um, I think down the track, we'll see um, more healthier things other than alcohol in drinks. And I think the alcohol industry has an opportunity, or the drinks industry as a whole has an opportunity here. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely, I, as you said, yes, I do think we're still a little bit away from, from it being where we kind of want it to be, because when you have such a deep embedded mindset about something, it, it does need to change over time. A long but time. <laughs> the, the, yeah. yeah, what was different with the cigarette companies is that there was no real alternative that exactly. they could promote. It was either you smoke cigarettes or you're done, and that's our business done. Where yep. at least here with these alcohol brands, there are other ways to there are other ways to still make revenue, which obviously is the end game for all businesses, but in a manner that doesn't have to necessarily mean they they only sell what they've traditionally been doing. Yeah, absolutely, an exciting future ahead. So, and well, t what does the future hold for you? What does it hold for you in terms of your relationship with alcohol and um, and and what you plan to do with this newfound alcohol-free powers? Well, with the with, you know, in the future, I I can never say. As of today, I I'm happy not drinking. And if you ask me today, do I see myself drinking? I'll say no. But then again, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know, um, you know, how my relationship is going to change. I, I still feel like I have a lot of self-work I need to do before I can, or if I ever reintroduce alcohol into my life. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I can never say never. But at this point in my life, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so at peace without alcohol and really my life hasn't changed uh, or gotten, you know, sort of the, the experiences haven't changed in any way. In fact, my experiences of life have become so much better without alcohol. You know, you, you go out on a night out, you remember the whole night, you don't wake up with a hangover the next morning. And, and, and then it's, it's just, it's enhanced my experiences in life. So of today there's, yeah, I, 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 I I don't see myself going back to it, but as I said, I, I, I can't say um, what the future holds. Um, and in terms of kind of taking on this message, you know, I think the response that my series Consider This has got, especially around the alcohol and, and seeing the response my post got on the one year anniversary, I feel like the next step is to, is to set up a foundation. Um, I've talked about this a little bit in the past, but my, my idea is to set up a foundation in India um, to do with alcohol and to, to offer support to people who, who might want to stop for a while. Um, 
it, it will be, you know, they do these things here in the US, they call them sober parties. So the idea would to be to sort of put on these, these events, if you like, or social gatherings for people on Friday nights or Saturday nights that don't involve alcohol. Um, I think, as I said, a lot of what I've realized is that a lot of people don't want to give up because they're scared that they'll lose their, their, their social life. So my idea is, well, then why not give you that same social experience without the pressure of feeling like you have to drink? Completely. So that's, we have like um, a Daybreaker here and we have Moryville uh, yeah. and absolutely those yeah. sober raves, sober bars. Absolutely. Lots more connection in society of something other than alcohol. That's what I mean. And now, look, I didn't I didn't even think about this until I guess I was forced to with this lockdown. But there's so much that can be uh, achieved just by Zoom <laughs> from people's own living rooms. So th there are ways to do this, which um, I think, uh, yeah, that, that's definitely the next step for me. And that's what I was working on until, of course, um, we got into this lockdown. and. Um, that's where I'm always open to, you know, speaking to uh, people like yourself and working with organizations that do such a great job, such as yours, in seeing how we can all do what's best for society. Brilliant. Awesome. Well, I mean, uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great to have you on. Um, and I'll we'll definitely be connecting with you. Um, as I say that, you know, we're, we're completely collaborative in this, in this industry, if you like, of alcohol prevention and helping people change their relationship with alcohol. So um, I have no doubt that we'll be doing some more stuff together um, down the track. Um, thanks so much for your time. No, thank you. for listening to the one year no beer podcast for a full list of episodes and to join in the challenge yourself head on over to oneyearnobeer.com Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.